you ever had somebody and your parents, or you probably have had kids that fit this description, but somebody that was in your circle, family member, friend, that was really, really sick, like the kind of sick where your heart goes out to them and you want to do stuff for them, but you don't want to be anywhere near them because you see how sick they are and you don't want to get that sick, right? Thank you, moms, for covering that for us dads like all the time. Uh, I can't do throw up. So, you know, my wife takes care of all of that. We were in Poland 2016 uh, on a mission trip, and we, the way we were staying, we had about three or four different apartments that we were all uh, split up in. So we had a couple of girls' apartments. We had a guy's apartment. And uh, so it was me, a couple of guys, our adult guys. And in this picture, there's a guy way in the back. He used to be in our, in our class where his kids all graduated. He sat back there. His name is Joel Drummond. Joel is one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet. Joel was on that trip, and we'd been working hard like all day in Poland and had walked the girls to their apartments. And then us guys, we walked back to our apartment and we're sitting in the living room of this apartment doing some share time, debriefing the day. What did God show you? Uh, what do you see? We're talking about even sharing the gospel. And I didn't notice. It was one of those things that it happened, and you realized later that you saw it. Joel got up and left. And again, I, was, I didn't even cross my mind, you know, of what. And so we're talking, having this kind of moment of look back on the day. And for, we're, we're, in, we're in the far side of the living room, farthest from the hallway. Down the hallway and into the bathroom, the door closed. We hear Joel, sounds like he's screaming. I, I, can't even, I can't even do it for you because I have a microphone on and it would be, it would blow, but it was like, way louder than that. It was so loud and shocking that when it happened, like all of our small group that was talking, we all just froze, and no one, literally no one knew what to do. Like, it was like, what, is there an axe murder in our apartment? Like, we, we, like it was one of those shocking, what, what just happened? And one of our other adults, Mark, goes, in, in the silence, should somebody check on him? Like, and, and one of the boys jumped up and ran through the living room down the hallway, and they're like, Joel, are you okay? And we could hear Joel's voice. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm fine. And we start cracking up laughing. I mean, it is... I've never heard someone puking like this in all of my life. Like, like he was angrily puking, um, <laughs> mad at whatever disease he had just gotten and was letting a, a four-block radius of people know that he was angry about it. So we can't even do share time because we're, like, laughing so hard. I mean, it, and it, it happens two or three more times. And then he comes out and comes in. He's like, yeah, I'm not feeling so good. <laughs> we're like, Yeah. I'm going to go to bed. So he goes to bed. We kind of finish up on the night. The next morning I get up and I'm thinking, man, that's like, uh, that's pretty crazy. Well, what had happened is a bug had gotten to one of our teams, probably some, from some food they ate, because I started getting text messages, hey, this kid's sick and this adult's sick. And so, you know, I'm in mission trip mode. I'm like, if your arm hasn't fallen off, you're picking up a shovel. Like, you know, when we got work to do and... Um, so the next time I'm getting these texts, oh, this kid's sick. And I'm like, I haven't responded yet to tell them they're going to have to, you know, buckle up and get after it because I'm going to go check on Joel because Joel is a man's man. The joke in Poland with Joel, Joel would be the guy that if you went, hey, uh, I fell down seven flights of stairs. I have a seven inch gash. I'm bleeding uh, and I can't see anything. Joel would go oh, drink some water. You'll be fine. Like that, you know, that was his answer to everything. Just drink some water. So I go in to check on Joel, the man's man, because I know he's going to be fine. I, that morning, I walk in. I go, hey, man, how are you feeling? And he goes, I, I, I can't get out of bed. 
And that's when I knew, like, okay, the plague has officially reached us. So I had much more compassion on everybody else. And so it was one of those moments of, like, what, what do you do? Like, here's this guy as a friend. He is obviously feeling absolutely terrible. You want to do something. What do you do? Like, I'm not going to cuddle up with him. That's weird. Um, I don't want to get sick, you know. You're kind of from a distance, like, asking, you know, what can I do? And he's like, I'll be fine. You know, y'all, y'all go work. And you kind of leave with this uncomfortable tension of, I want to minister to somebody. He's feeling terrible. And you reflect back on times when you felt that way, right? Like, you've been really sick, and you've been quarantined to a room, and it gets lonely. You just want somebody to share, maybe, in the misery. If you've ever had, like, a storm of tragedy land over your life, and I'm not talking about like a temporary sickness, like, like real tragedy where suffering was a part of your experience. You've had this range of emotions, right? I mean, suffering brings anger sometimes, confusion of what's going on and why, loneliness because you feel like other people aren't there with you or they can't, they, they can't walk the journey with you. Or sometimes that leads to even a loss of faith. Like, God, Why? And we talk about the book of Job, and for the next three weeks we'll be continuing there. Job is a lot about suffering. That's what the entire book's about. We got a snapshot of his life last week, and I'll, I'll recap us here in a minute. But when we suffer, or when other people are suffering, we are often caught in this tension of what, what do I do? As a pastor, I hear that all the time. Because as a pastor in a church, a large church, you, we have church members that have major events happen in their life where suffering sets in, and they have a small group. They have a group of people that gather around, and they have the same feeling for them that I did for Joel that you've had, where they, they ask me, what can I do? I want to do something. Uh, earlier this year, one of our own, I, we've told her story, and she's been up here on the stage um, before, but Riley York is, is a, now a freshman at Baylor. She's, this is a picture from this last week when she was moving into Baylor. Earlier this year, got the phone call, and, that, and it'll be one of those phone calls I remember for the rest of my life from Heidi her mom, when we found out that she had lymphoma. She'd had a, uh, something taken out of her neck, and they sent off her biopsy, and everybody's assumed, oh, it's just it's a, it's a gross. She's feeling fine, you know, not hurting, has total energy. And they came back, and they said, it's, it's lymphoma. You have cancer as a high school senior. I remember getting that phone call, I mean, sitting in my office and jumping in the car and driving over there. And, I, and I'm supposed to be a veteran at, at this. Right? I mean, 26 years of youth ministry, there's been tragedy that's happened. But even 26 years in and tragedy upon tragedy, I'm driving over there and my prayer is, God, get, help me know what to say, help me know what to do. Because what do you do? You, you want to walk in and, and, you, and you want to bring comfort to the, your friend that's suffering, right? And, and oftentimes it, it causes us to actually say stupid things. Like we walk in and we go, hey, everything's going to be all right. Well, I'm not a doctor. I don't know that. But it's good-hearted. Like, we, we want to comfort the person, and we, <clears throat> we know that they are struggling, so we say things. Here, here's another thing people say all the time. You know, well, hey, everything happens for a reason. Don't tell somebody that that's suffering. One, I, I can't even guarantee that that's true. But you have somebody, and, and there might be somebody in this, in this room that's had an experience, uh, friends that have lost a child. And people that have said, well, hey, everything happens for a reason. Do you know, like, for the person on the other side of that, how insensitive that is? You lost a child, but there's a purpose behind it. 
and you'll figure it out later. That's what we're saying. And we mean it. We, we mean it with good intentions, and we say it because we don't know what else to do, because we want to come in because we love people, and we want to fix things. And we don't know what to do. That's why we bring food, right? Like we'll bring some meals. And we, I mean, we do great at that, you know, bringing food. Several years ago, uh, one of our guys that used to be one of our youth ministers, kids of all graduated, his name was Benny. Benny's wife passed away from cancer. And I was involved with the family and doing things. And I remember being over at the house kind of a day after, first or second day, family's all in town. And I'm there, and somebody rings the doorbell, and they bring, you know, this frozen meal food. And, hey, we're praying for you. And they hand it to Benny, and Benny thanks them. And Benny closed the door. And I remember Benny standing there, and he's, like, watching them leave. And he looks at me, and he goes, I got to wait till they leave because I got to take this to the neighbors. And I said, what? And he said, I, I, he said, my counter's full, my refrigerator's full, and my freezer's full. I don't have another place to put any more food. And he said, so I've been, the last six or seven things people brought, after they leave, I take them over. I've been feeding the neighborhood. And he said, I, I love, I love that people are concerned. I just, I can't, I cannot eat all this food. Like, but, but it's partly for us, right? We want to do something. When Riley got sick, same thing. Like, I want to do something. Get a food, start, hey, let me get a food thing set up. Somebody from school already got it set up. We've got, you know, food for the next seven months. Like, and I had this brilliant idea. I said, you know what? She's going to be going back and forth probably to, you know, treatments and things like that. Let's, that, she's going to be in a hospital room. It's not going to be home. Uh, let's, let's set up an Amazon wish list where you can put some books on there, you know, blanket, what, you know, things that you would travel, make, make hospital bed, hospital room home. And she said, okay, I'll do that. I said, listen, there's going to be a pe- lot of people who want to do this, so you need to, like, you need to, like, wedding registry, right? You know I mean? You need to make a list. And so she did. She made an extensive list, and I think within 24 hours, it was all gone, all bought, because we, we want to do something, and we don't know what to do. We want to fix people's pain, but what reality tells us is that we can't, and only God can fix people's pain at that level. Now, he might use us along the way, but we need to partner with him rather than trying to figure out on our own. So go over to the book of Job because we're going to enter into this story of suffering. And let me give you a recap real quick. We looked at Job chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2, and I challenged you last week to read two chapters a day. So if you're doing that, you're probably somewhere around Job 15. If not, just start reading through the book of Job. I would love for you to, we're in it for four weeks, chapter 1 and 2 last week, chapter 2 this week. And then we're going to jump way far ahead and then finish it out. So we're not going verse by verse or anything, just hitting some of these major themes about suffering. But here's what we discovered last week in recap of who Job is. Job was a morally amazing dude. I mean, the, the scripture said that he was upright and blameless, morally sound. He had uh, the blessing of God. He had a large family. He had a lot of wealth, over 11,000 animals. He had servants. The scripture says he was the greatest of all the men of the East. God had his hand on him and his eye on him. And then we entered into the stories. We talked about spiritual warfare in the spiritual realm. God and Satan have this conversation where God says to Satan, have you considered Job? Job loves me. And Satan's response to God is, well, of course Job loves you. You've made him rich. You've given him a big family. He, He has no reason not to love you. But if he didn't have all those things, it'd be a different story. And God says to Satan, okay, you can intervene. I'll allow you to do something, but don't do anything to his life or his health. And so Job gets the, the, <coughs> the worst day of any day. 
He's sitting, and he has four guys, messengers, come to him, and they come one right after the other. In fact, the scripture says that while one is speaking, another one came. And the first three basically say, they split it all up, but all of your wealth, everything you own has been destroyed. Boom. Total stock market collapse for him. Retirement gone. No money. Not just his like future savings, his current business and life. He's gone from extremely wealthy to bankrupt in a matter of minutes. And then the fourth guy comes, and while they're saying all that, says, hey, also, all of your kids, all 10 of them are dead. It's a rough day. And then we find out that, that Job's faith, even in that, doesn't waver. And Satan and God have another conversation beginning of chapter 2. And Satan's response to God is, well, yeah, Job still loves you because he has his health. And God says, you can take his health, but don't take his life. And then next we find out Job is covered in sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And he is in such a destitute state that his wife, the love of his life, you know, promised to have you and to hold you through sickness and health and all that, looks at him and hears her advice. Why don't you just curse God and die? That's how bad he is. And Job still stays faithful to God. So it's in the midst of all of this happening that we enter into today's journey when Job has some friends show up. This is, it's, after this has happened, um, he, he's in mourning, and we're going to look at Job chapter 2. We're just going to look at three verses. Last week, we went through almost a whole chapter and a half. But this week, three verses. Job chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. So what we've got is, is these friends are coming from all over. Um, again, go back to this historical period. Possibly we don't know the date of Job real well, but at the very least, a thousand years before Christ. So no cars, no trains, no planes. You're traveling by animal. So any distance is going to be a journey. And so these three friends, time has gone by. A lot of time has gone by. There's been enough time to go by that the message got out to all the friends of the tragedy that's happened to Job. They've been able to communicate, to make an appointment, to all show up, gather together, and then make the journey to Job. So they've come, they've come to the funeral, but the funeral's long happened. And they come, and we see, we see these good intentions. We see that they, their heart resonates with ours. It says they made an appointment together to come, and here's what they want to do, to show him sympathy and to comfort him. That we get that. That's what we want to do. When we have a friend who's suffering, a family member who's suffering, we want to show sympathy. We want to comfort them. We want to be there and share our life with them. Verse 12. <clears throat> and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. What a, what a verse to tell you what Job's life is like. I don't know if it's because of the sores and his body's covered from head to toe. If that's why they didn't recognize him. Those may have been long gone, but you know what? what probably true? He's just not the same man that he was because of suffering. I mean, tell you this, if I had gone through what Job went through, in my grief, I probably would have missed a meal or two. So physically, he doesn't even look like the Job that they once knew. They saw him from a distance, and they did not recognize him. 
And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Again, that's kind of odd. Like we're like, what is, what is that about? Tearing robes and taking some dirt off the ground. That, that was an ancient way of mourning. One year, you know, one day down the road, people will look back at us and they'll go, so when, you know, when, when people passed away, people put on like black coats and they put a, they put a piece of uh, material around their neck and tied a knot around their neck and uh, put on uncomfortable pants and uncomfortable shoes and they went and sat, you know, in a church. That, that's how we mourn. We go to a funeral. This is how they mourn. So it's odd to us, but they would put on sack, tear their robes and a lot of times, it doesn't say they did this here, but put on sackcloth, which is like a, a, a real coarse fabric, usually made out of goat hair, something like that. And you suffered alongside the person who was suffering. And that's what's happening. They, they've come, and now they're, they're identifying with Job. They're suffering alongside of him. They're giving up their clothes. They're tearing them, wrenching them in their pain. And now look at this. They get it. Now, if you've read the rest of Job, let me, let me before we read verse 13, it's going to be a key. If you've read through the first, you've been reading two chapters a day, if you've up through 15, what you're going to find out is shortly after today, one of the reasons why we're going to jump so far in the future is because the bulk of Job is conversations between Job and these three friends. And what we find out is these three friends are really not that great of friends. They, they do well in verse 13, and we'll see what they did well. The rest of the chapter is them trying to give Job reasons for why this happened. To the extent of one of them looks at Job and says, basically, in a nutshell, Job, this all happened, so what did you do? What, what, sin, what, what sin was in your life? Because obviously, if all of this happened to you, God is mad at you and you're sin, so, so tell us what, why, why you sin. And Job says, Job says, I haven't. And they don't even believe him. And, and that's, that's not the way you comfort someone that's mourning, right? Well, what'd you do wrong? But here, at, at, at the first part, for the first seven days, they get it right. Verse 13 says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. We read that, but put yourself there. Seven days. They see Job from a distance. They come, and they can tell, they can tell that he's still grieving, maybe even months later. They don't have words. And so they just practice what we would call the ministry of presence. They go and they just sit with Job for seven days and seven nights. That, that, that's tough. And what I want us to understand this week for ourselves, but also for our kids, is that coming alongside people who are suffering is, is never easy. I mean, imagine just like sitting there. Friends are kind of looking at each other like, say something. What do we do? They sit there, Job's weeping, Job's out of it, Job's sitting there, and they sit for several hours, and several more hours go by, the night comes, the next day comes, the next night comes, the next day. Seven days of just presence, feeling the tension of not knowing what to do, but that was ministry. And we see in this passage of Scripture, we see their, their sympathy. We see they want to comfort. We see all of these good things. And then, we're not going to read all of it. You'll read it on your own, but it takes the turn. Once they open their mouths, they stop being able to do good ministry. See, there's, there's people that are going to come across our life. There's people sitting in our small groups this morning. There's 
kids down the hallway that are they're in a stage of life that is real suffering. What, what I would call suffering, like, like I don't call being you know, sick with a virus for three days suffering. You might have suffered. But in my mind, suffering is that, that intense hurt that doesn't, have, that doesn't have the end that you can see. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Like I remember several years, about 10 years ago now, I mean, I tore my ACL playing basketball. And at the time, I, go, oh, that was, that I suffered. It hurt bad. But I don't put that in the category of suffering because I, I knew we're, we're going to go get surgery. They're going to uh, you know, put, a, put a hamstring you know, back around, make you a tendon. You're going to do this for a week. Then you're going to do rehab, and then you're going to be back. And you're, I had seen other people who had a torn ACL and saw what life was like afterwards, and it was fine. So, yeah, it was pain. It wasn't suffering. Suffering is, is I, mean, I don't know how this ends. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. It, it, I've got a journey in front of me. And when we engage with people and we walk into people's lives, it's not easy. But God's called us to do it. In fact, when you get in your small groups in a second, if you get further down into the questions, you go to the passage of Scripture where God calls us to carry one another or bear one another's burdens. That's, that's what we do as a small group. We, we go, hey, you've got pain. I'm going to tear my robe. I'm going to put on my sackcloth. I'm going to weep with you. I'm going to come from a great distance, and I'm going to sit with you. And if it's seven days and seven nights of not saying anything, that's what I'm going to do if that's what you need. Just so that you know that I'm here, because your presence to someone who's suffering says, I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to say. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm walking into your confusion. I'm walking into the unknown with you. And I don't have answers, but I'm going to be here. That's, that's how we minister to people who are suffering, people who are in pain. There's a story um, that Stephanie Gray tells. Uh, she's a pro-life advocate. She tells a story about a friend named Kathleen. Kathleen used to go every Friday night to one of the local nursing homes just to do ministry to people who had no one else. They didn't have family members that were coming to see them or things like that. Kathleen would go, and she, she built this relationship with this lady who was in a wheelchair. She was 93 years old, and every Friday they had a uh, habit of getting together, and they'd play a game of Scrabble together, and then Kathleen would go, and the elderly lady would go to bed. Kathleen was praying for God to give opportunities to minister to people, and one night after a game of Scrabble, she had that opportunity. As they were talking, putting the board, board game away, her friend looked, and this 93-year-old lady asked Kathleen, pointed to an article that was on the table, and she said, hey, what what do you think about doctor-assisted suicide? And took Kathleen back for a second. She said, well, I, I hate the idea. She said, I, I feel like it's a, it's a picture or a reason why our, what's wrong with our society. Their society and culture has made other people feel like that their best alternative is to end their life and not experience their life anymore. And I, I hate that as a culture, that's even something that we would talk about. And the other lady in the wheelchair said, well, you know, I do sympathize with people. I'm 93. I'm alone. I'm stuck in this wheelchair. Kathleen leaned in and she said, well, I want you to know this with tears in her eyes. I look forward to every Friday night coming to spend time with you. And the other lady said, really? Kathleen said, yes, really. And the other lady said this. She said, well, I guess that's reason enough for me to be here. Walking alongside somebody suffering. Scrabble didn't change, didn't get the lady out of a wheelchair. Scrabble didn't make her go from 93 to 23. But there was somebody there that said, Hey, I'll walk with you through some of the difficult times. So 
What do we do? Because ministering to people's suffering is difficult. Well, I want to give you a couple of thoughts. And again, I want, I, I, I want you to take your parent hat off for a second. I know we've got teenagers down the hallway and kids on, on the other floors. I want you to take your parent hat off. You're going to have time later this week to put it on and talk to your kids about some questions that we'll put in the app and talk about how do we minister to people who are suffering. And maybe some great deep conversations will come out. But I want you to take off your parent hat and just put on your disciple hat for you. Like, what, what do you do? So the first thing is this. Start asking God, hey, God, who, who is one person that you're calling me to care for or to comfort? Let's just start asking that and, and saying, Lord, is there somebody? And you, you might be surprised. There might be somebody that the Lord just puts on your mind right away. That, that hey, this is the person that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share life with. But I, when, when you pray that, I want you to understand that walking, suffering seven days, seven nights, like Job's friends, it, we're talking about a long journey, but we're going to be Christ to people because that's what the church is supposed to do. We start asking, God, who, who is it in my life that, that, that you've put me in touch with, that you've, you've, I've rubbed shoulders with, and my circle reaches their circle that's suffering that I can come alongside with? And let me say this. You may not have somebody pop into your mind. Pray about it. I'm sure I, I, I really believe God will give you some people. But I also want you to understand this. Suffering is subjective. Uh, we're talking about heavy things. But for some people, suffering may be something like, like, let me give you an example. And I don't, sounds silly, don't throw things at me. But I see, I see things that come up on Facebook from time to time. People post a picture of their dog, and their dog has passed away. And they post something about it, like their dog's been with them for 18 years. Now, for me, I'm not a pet person. Like, we have a cat. If the cat died, there will not be a Facebook post other than an invite to the party. I'm going to give away the cat food all the stuff, so that my kids go, can we get another one? I can say, oh, we gave that stuff away, some people who really needed it. But listen, for, for some people, though, that like a pet, that pet, that dog, they might have been in the family for 15, 16 years or something like that. And for some people, there's not just an emotional connection because that the animal's like part of the family, but for some people, it's even deeper because like they got the, they got the animal for their, like one of their kids when their kid was like two and the kid just went to college, and then the dogs got old enough, the dog passed away, and it's, it's as much about mourning the loss of the kid going to college that was connected to the dog as it was the dog. I mean, so when I say that, it's for somebody like me, you're, you're, I, that's not going to be suffering for me. But it may be real suffering for someone else because suffering is subjective. So it may not be divorce or loss of a family member or something that, that, that we would go, oh, that's huge in suffering. It may, be something, it may be something in the life of a teenager that's a breakup of a boyfriend or girlfriend. And as a parent, we look back and we go, I did that like 74 times. Like, you know, get over it. But it may be suffering because suffering can be subjective. They may not see the end of the tunnel. They may not see that, you know what, one day they're going to forget that they even dated that person and be happily married. Because right now at the moment, there's intense pain and they don't see an end for it. And that doesn't mean that things that are real suffering or heavier things or less. It's just a suffering subjective. So as you're praying on God, how do I come alongside of people? It may not be something that you deem as huge, but it may be something that you can step into and put life on life and, and really do ministry to people. And you know what so it may be? Take that illustration I just gave. You've got like an eighth grade boy and the girl just dumped him. And you can tell dad that he does not want to talk about it with you. Because he's assuming that you're going to go, come on, boy, 
toughen up. But he's hurting. One of, the, one of the best ministry you might do is just sit down next to him and pick up a video game controller and let him beat the snot out of you in whatever game he's playing, just to be there. And at the most, you say, hey, man, I know it's been a rough week. I just want to hang out with you some. That type of ministry to someone who's suffering is the ministry of presence that is huge. But let me also encourage you this. Here's the second thing. Look, look for people who are suffering. They might be strangers and do what you can. I mean, pray. I think that God has placed us life on life with some people, and we want to walk with them. But look for strangers who are suffering, offering what you can. So I'll give you an example. On Thursday, Rayleigh and I, Rayleigh's my sixth grader, Rayleigh and I went on dad-daughter date, and we went down to Memorial Park in Round Rock and walked through the park. Um, we grabbed some Round Rock donuts, and then we walked out to the Round Rock and went kind of exploring down the river some. And as we were walking, there were some people hanging out down by the river that I thought, and we even talked about it, I was like, I don't know if that person's homeless or not. And we walked by a guy, he was a young guy, laying on a bench. As we walked past him, I said, like, I, I don't know if he's homeless or not. It kind of looks homeless, but <laughs> could have been out for a run and, you know, resting on the bench. You didn't want to go up and go, hey, are you homeless? And he's like, no, I'm just <laughs> jogging. Like, you know, Sorry. So as we were coming back, he was still laying on the bench, and we could see him, and I said, probably. And he looked young. And so as we walked by, I looked at, I looked at him, his, and his eyes were open. I said, hey, you doing all right? And he said, no. So we stopped. Teachable moment, but also a ministry moment. And we went back and started talking to him. His name's Ben, 18-year-old kid, went to Cedar Ridge, got kicked out of his house. Don't know why, didn't ask. Rayleigh's got a thousand ideas of why. Uh, generating in her head. <laughs> Talked to him some, and you know, I just need a job. So are you staying right around here? Yeah, we, we talked for a few minutes. I talked to him about a couple churches that were nearby. They could, you know, say, have you been these? No, and I didn't get the sense that he was really interested in that. It's one of those moments. I want to help him, but I don't know what to do. And Ray and I talked. As, as we walked back to the car, we talked about, homelessness, and we talked about mental illness, and we talked about consequences, and we talked about the difficulty of the homeless predicament. You know, here's a, a young guy that goes, I, I want a job. And Ray and I are talking about it. I said, you know, but how, how do you get a job? And you go fill out an application, and the address is, I sleep on the bench in Memorial Park, and I don't have a phone. And I said, even somebody like day labor, I use a friend of ours as a painting business. And, you know, if they hired him, he's got to be confident he takes this kid who he doesn't know anything about other than he got kicked out of his home and doesn't have any options and send him into somebody else's house that's a customer to paint. He can't do things like that. I said, so we're just talking about how difficult it is. I didn't have an answer. I gave him the cash that I had in my wallet, prayed with him. He said I could. Gave him my phone number. He didn't have a phone, but I said, you can get a phone. If you think of a way that I can help you, let me know. I said, and I told him, I said, I'm going to call a couple of people I know in Round Rock, find out resources. And if you're interested, you know, let me know. I don't know. How, I can't can't find you. Call me. I'll, I'll have some answers. And I haven't heard from him. I don't have the answers. I don't know. But for a moment, this life-on-life -life moment of suffering and compassion, I'll tell you this. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that little bit made a difference. And you might go, how do you know? Because he got it from laying on the bench and sat down. And when you look into somebody's eyes as you're having a conversation with them, sometimes you just know. Change his life? No. Probably just got him a meal or two. 
But there's those moments that we need to look for. God's called you to some people, probably he's placed life into. We also have to be the people who are following Jesus in such a way. You realize how many times Jesus was walking and saw someone that was suffering, somebody that was in need, and stopped what he was doing to do ministry. We have to do that too. We've got to train our teenagers to do that too. So they won't do it till they see us doing it. I'll tell you one last story. I don't even know where it came from. It's the story of a lady, a four-month-old baby. She's in the library, and she's walking around looking for books. The four-month-old is talking, you know, like a four-month-old does, making baby noises. And she's walking down the uh, one aisle of books, and, and an elderly gentleman's walking the other way, and the baby's just happy, not crying and screaming. The baby's just happy, babbling. And, and the, the man mutters under his breath as he passes the woman or baby, uh, somebody needs to tell that kid to shut up or I will. And she went into like full mom mode, right? And she stopped and she said, sir, I don't know what someone did to you to make you hate the sound of a baby, but I am not going to tell my baby to shut up and I'm not going to allow you to as well. And she said she braced for the conflict, right? And the guy stopped and very quickly his eyes welled up with tears and he apologized. And he said, I, he said, I, I apologize. And they stood there looking at each other for what seemed like a long time, but it was seconds until he said, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, I lost my two-month-old to sudden infant death syndrome. And as they stood there just looking at each other, sharing this moment of suffering, he kept going. And he started just unfolding his story and talking about how, how that moment in his life translated into a lot of anger. And that anger translated into a marriage that didn't last. And that marriage that didn't last turned into decades of isolation as he moved away from people that ended up in a passing conversation in a library for a moment that the Holy Spirit put together where a woman said something thinking it was to be conflict and a man began to open up. They went over and they sat down on some chairs and she said, tell me about your son. And for the next several minutes, he just started talking about a son that he had 50 years ago. Shared more of his life. And the moment turned from tense to moments of happiness. His, his whole demeanor changed. He ends up asking, can I hold your baby? And she hands that four-month-old. He lays his cheek on that baby's head. Talks some more, thanks her, and leaves. Never to be seen again from the story. But here's what I want us to wrestle with for a second. 50 years. Where were the people in his life that when he had that suffering period of time, they came along and said, we don't have an answer for SIDS. We don't know what to say. We don't have the right words. We've got some casseroles and some presents. And I mean presents is like, I'm, we're coming to share life and we'll sit with you and we'll do life with you. And we don't know how to get through this but we're going to go with you through the end until we get through this. What if that had been a story? How much, how much might have changed over the course of 50 years? And the bigger question is, who is it that God has brought into your life right now that you're going to present, prevent that story from happening 50 years from now? Because we came to be Jesus to people. Suffering is never, coming alongside a friend who's suffering is never easy. 
but it's mandatory. It's crucial. It's what we've been called to do. So this week, no, no one likes messages on suffering, right? I mean, y'all probably rather me do like lessons on tithing and giving than suffering. But suffering is a part of the human experience. And we identify with Christ when we suffer. Scripture is very clear multiple times about that. And as believers, we come to identify with other people in their suffering through Christ. And so this week, I'm praying that we will, some of us, pull our heads up out of the sand of school starting and work and all this, to be able to be sensitive to the people around us and engage with them in their suffering and bring our kids alongside us as we do. You've got inside your yap some questions. I'd love for you to take those and start talking through this. You also have a parent yap. If you don't, you can download it um, off, the, uh, off your place, uh, Google Play Store, Apple, Play, Apple Store. Directions are on the church website. I'll tell you this. I, I talked about it last week. First time for me. Do this, please. Wednesday night, finish Collide. First time to like, drive home with my, my new youth ministry kiddo. And so she hung around here. We got in the car. As we're, we walked to my office first, put stuff away. And I pulled up the app. I'd forgotten the questions I'd written. And pulled up the app. And we, we, on the way home, on Wednesday night, we talked about two of them. And I have the third one that we're going to talk about this week. Is that third one from last week was, how have you seen, what have you seen this week that might be spiritual warfare, spiritual things happening? So I didn't ask that question on Wednesday night. I was waiting for some time. You can do it just on the drive home. So you've got those things. You've got questions and the minister's thing to talk amongst yourself. You've got 15 minutes or so. Go for it.